This is Geeks and Jacks. And welcome back to Geeks and Jacks episode 111, recording April 19th, 2022. This is Brian Sullivan. Glad to have you listeners tuning in. Before getting into this episode, this podcast is on Anchor.fm. You can also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So head on down to those places, search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content awaits. So definitely got some stuff to talk about, including Fantastic Beasts and the disappointing number one uh, numbers. Talk about some history on April 15th. Things include some TV passings, uh, The Simpsons, Nintendo Switch, and maybe one or two other things for this episode. So let's get cracking into uh, April 15th because some two, two big things occurred. Although one is the technic- on a technicality that it began very late on April 14th, way back in 1912. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I don't even need to explain it. The RMS Titanic. Been over 100 plus years and 110 this past uh, this past Friday, I believe. And so, 11:40 p.m. give or take, they encounter an iceberg. Hits the ship on the side as they try to try to steer away from from the iceberg. Floods five compartments. The ship goes down in almost three hours. I think it's a pretty important thing to think about because there had been disasters with ships, ships that keeled over, bad things happening on on ships, maybe explosions and maybe one or two other things hitting things, multiple, multiple things. But the Titanic was probably one of the more shocking things to occur because at the time, it was one of the most luxurious ships in all of the world. And the technology that was put into it, when you think about it, back in 1912, it was unbelievable what they were trying to do. A ship that took a good th- three, four years to to make down in uh, what, Harlan and Wolf, and for White Star Line, I mean, trying to compete with uh, its competitors. You know, over the past few months, I've been looking at some documentaries and stuff like that, looking at some videos. It's just crazy, just the design of it, and the fact that it was touted to be practically unsinkable, with the type of water-type doors that they were using, so that in case a few compartments were flooded, you could seal it off, and if you had just two or three compartments flooded, 
the ship would be still floatable. And it, and it, all it needed was just f- four to stay to stay afloat. And unfortunately, it was five. And the big problem that you think of is safety. And I think it's kind of important that we have an incident like this. Not to say that they all des- that the ship deserved to sink, but considering how lax things were back back in the 1910s, and considering that the amount of passings were pretty minuscule compared to what happened on that night to where 1,500 people died. Not enough lifeboats. Those are like 16 lifeboats. And when you think about it, up to 65 people in a lifeboat and a passenger and crew combined all together for just 2,200. That doesn't cover half. You might get to 1,000 if you're lucky. And just the amount of turmoil and everything in between, you know, the design of the ship and just some of the, in some of the recent documentaries of the last 15, 20 years of looking at maybe design flaws and decisions that were made in regards to the ship. I mean, it caused many people to wonder if the ship they were on was safe. And that's why after the sinking, the ships started to have more lifeboats better radios and all this other stuff and better technology to know where there's icebergs and to for for ships to be aware of stuff that occurred during ice season and all this other stuff so while unfortunate it's an important footnote in terms of making sure things were safe and things are a lot safer now these days you might still have some incidents here and there but otherwise yeah, it very unfortunate, but at the same time, safety has come a long way since that incident. Now, the other big thing, as we go right into sports, Jackie Robinson. April 15th marked 75 years to the day Jackie Robinson came into Major League Baseball. And this is pretty important because he was the first colored color baseball player to go into the major leagues. Now there were stuff such as the Negro Leagues, but for him to go in there and to be with the Brooklyn Dodgers and to play for them and not only do well, but to but to defy all the odds says a lot. And if I'm not mistaken, he played his entire career with the uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, so he was one of those guys that part of World War II had to fight, had to deal with racism here and there, and, and many other things. Played from forty uh, seven through fifty six with the Dodgers, 
a uh, six-time All-Star, although they have the uh, Negro League there, um, so technically seven. MVP one year. Uh, just taking a look all together. Rookie of the year. Got the batting title one year. 1955 World Series. And gone to the Hall of Fame in 62. Actually, he barely squeaked in in 62. Won 24 out of 160. So, that's about, well, like 77%. Or something along that line. I don't know. But. Yeah I mean. He was very important. And the number 42. Has been. Officially retired by every. MLB team. Since 1997. And the last guy. To wear 42. Was uh, Mariano Rivera. Which he came into the league in 95. Actually, I want to see if he had any other numbers because obviously he came in two years before before they dedicated April fifteenth to uh, to Robinson. I mean, arguably the greatest. Uh, okay, forty-two was the number he always had. Which is that that that's really crazy to think. That is very crazy. Uh, anyway, uh, you don't see other 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 black players come into the league if not for Jackie Robinson. And while there are some other nobles, say Elston Howard, for example, winning the MVP as well with in the American League. I mean. The impact could be seen. It's certainly, while that is important, baseball has come a long way, and maybe it's just me, but many things have changed. Some things for the better, some things for the worse. At this point, MLB might just be a shell of its former self. Especially considering you have these guys that would play in game in, game out like a Robinson. And then you have, now these days, the pitching is just ridiculous. While I understand spring training is a little rough this year, because they didn't have much time, and sure, maybe some arms might be cold, and that's why they added a few more uh, people to the rosters for each team. Somebody explain this logic to me. 80 pitches through 7 innings. Perfect baseball. And you have Clayton Kershaw. Sure, he hasn't been the same in recent years, but you can have a Kershaw that is vintage Kershaw. Why not give him the opportunity to pitch the 8th and ninth innings of a perfect game that he could potentially get? I mean, one of the premier pitchers for the L.A. Dodgers and of the last decade or so. 
pulled out. While the Dodgers do win in a shutout, uh, it was a one-hit game. And even Roberts, not Roberts, uh, Kershaw agreeing with him being pulled out after seven innings. I mean, it's one thing to protect your starting pitcher. I get it. Kershaw is your lead guy. But, I don't think Dave Roberts understands how great a perfect game would be for a for teams such as the, the L.A. Dodgers. I don't think he understands that. And 80 pitches? Are you kidding me? I rewatched part of the David Wells' perfect game that is on YouTube, and he threw 119 pitches. Granted, different era, mind you, but 119 pitches? You're telling me Kershaw couldn't get to 100 pitches? I mean, I get it, he's not the same as he used to be. But you can still have a vintage Kershaw game. I just I just don't get the logic. We're over-relying too much on bullpens now these days. I feel like that strategy is going to come back to bite some teams. And so far, none of the teams seem anywhere close to being... Like, granted, first month, I'll... Which I'll say, but... I mean, I'm just looking at some of the standings right now. It's There's not really a clear team that looks... Looks dominant. The AL in particular, I mean... Both the Red Sox and Yankees are 5-5. Five and five. Detroit and Cleveland, 4-5 and five in the Central. Twins, 4-6. and six. Got three six-win teams in the uh, West with the... Houston Astros six and four, six and five uh, Angels and Athletics Mariners are five and five. Uh, I think the team with the best record right now is uh, oh, Dodgers, though I think they're pl- playing right now against the Atlanta Braves. So if they win, I believe they're up right now against Atlanta. They'll be holding the best record over the uh, New York Mets, who are surprisingly seven and three to begin the year. You just wonder if there's going to be a collapse or not. But they do have some good players, both on the mound and uh, at the plate. So it's only a matter of, can this team stick together for a season and have a guy such as Peter Alonzo and Jacob deGrom give them the opportunity uh, to, to at least pitch in a playoff game? Who wouldn't want to see a 500-foot home run from Pete Alonzo? Who wouldn't want to see a 7-8 inning shutout from DeGrom? Really, it's just... I mean, just even looking at it all together, I mean, Cubs 6-4, and four, Brewers 6-5, and five, Pirates 5-5. Five and five. I mean, sure, things will uh, stand out after a month, and then stand out even more after the month of May. One of the things that caught my interest over the last few weeks uh, has been the L.A. Angels. Uh, I I forgot about Noah Syndergaard. I didn't realize he got dealt with. And if I, and if I remember, 
that uh, certainly, if I had to say so, uh, I've completely forgot that he he went to L.A. and he's wearing uh, number 34. Now that's pretty significant in terms of the Angels because the last guy to wear number 34 for the Angels was Nick Adenhart. And it's been about 13 years since um, Adenhart was killed by a drunk driver who I believe was speeding really fast and plowed into a car that had Adenhart and uh, and a few others. I believe like three people, two of them were killed, that included Adenhart. And I believe that guy who killed them is serving a lengthy lengthy jail sentence. So is, uh, I believe his name is Eric Kay, who who I believe was responsible for the fentanyl fentanyl drug that that killed uh, Tyler Skaggs. And one of the guys that was brought to court this was a while ago, was Matt Harvey, who discussed things about opening up about taking taking drugs, which obviously will be a violation of MLB drug policies and be suspended for a couple months, according to ESPN. Just that... I don't know what it is. It just seems like the culture with the Angels is just not good. And stuff behind the scenes, sure, Hollywood. This ain't Hollywood. Especially, uh, there was some guy I saw, what was his name, Mac Miller? A drug dealer gave him, and this is, this is actually news not too long ago, in the last, uh, 12 hours, a drug dealer for uh, Mac Miller sentenced to, to about 11 years in prison. And this is from places, websites such as ABC7, Los Angeles, Pitchfork, fentanyl-laced pills that led to an overdose. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about the fent, fentanyl if... I'm very curious about it because it's one of those things that it's a controlled substance, a narcotic, it can treat severe pain. It's one of those things that is actually legal. And it is a legal pill. But I think it's something you have to get a prescription for, which is, I believe it's what it prescription needed. Cons- consult with a doctor if you're going to get pregnant. It's an opioid avoid with uh, alcohol so it, it's one of those things it sounds like okay I, I'm wondering what the costs are in regards to fentanyl uh, prescriptions oof this is this is according to the DEA uh, opioid that is 80 to 100 times stronger than morphine pain treatment for cancer uh, according to them if, as a pharmaceutical thing but probably black market probably way more dangerous than I think a number of these people realize 
I'm not sure if there's any way to stop the epidemic of these people taking the stuff, you know, aftermarket, black market type stuff. I'm not sure there's any way you can really stop it. I'd love to see it get stopped, but I don't know. It's it's a it's a tough pill to swallow. No pun intended. It's just it's it's extremely sad. Yeah. Extremely, extremely sad. When you look at the NBA, tell you what, I am definitely keeping my eyes on the Minnesota Timberwolves. Because they found their way to being in the playoffs for the first time in who knows how long. To see uh, the Pelicans get in as a surprise. Although, people were kind of amazed at Zion Williamson doing some dunking uh, prior to, I believe it was, it was either the game against the Spurs in the play-in tournament, or, did they, where was it? Have they played yet? Because I want to see if they have. Yep, losing to the Suns um, su- on Sunday. Tell you what, if I'm, I'll be curious to see how dominant of a team the Suns will be, because their biggest competition will no doubt be the Warriors. And I guess with the way they're playing, they are potentially a uh, a dangerous team with all the right tools, especially if they were to get Stephen Curry back. Philadelphia leading 2-0 against the Toronto Raptors. Utah and uh, Dallas could be a fun matchup right now. Uh, Milwaukee Bucks beating the Bulls in a close game. Game-winning layup uh, for the Boston Celtics to beat uh, the Brooklyn Nets. And Kyrie Irving showing his displeasure towards the Boston fans by flipping them off. This guy has got to be like one of the biggest nutcases going on with, uh, with with basketball. It's just, is his head in the right place? I know he played for Boston for a while and wasn't exactly in the right place either at times with them, but his maturity at times is just ridiculous. And it makes you wonder where he is mentally. And it's always uh, not a surprise when Miami finds ways to to get in the playoffs and or be a pretty good team and advance a few rounds into the playoffs. Maybe it's just me, but how about uh, how about Miami Phoenix? If not Miami Phoenix, I'd say. I don't know. Let's see. How about... I mean, Miami Warriors or Miami... uh, uh, Suns. I'm trying to think of like a team... The the only other team I could think of maybe... uh, Boston against one of them. I would say Philadelphia, but I'm a little hesitant to say that. It just... I don't know. They... 
Doc River teams always find a way to choke. That's the one thing I would definitely be concerned about. That's just me. Uh, not really a lot going on with the uh, NFL, at least from what I know. Although NASCAR had dirt racing uh, Sunday night, which is kind of interesting, I guess. I mean, doing it on Easter, all things considered. So Kyle Busch got a win there. I believe this is his first of the year, if I'm not mistaken. So here's how the top ten looks. Tyler Reddick second, Joey Logano third, Kyle Larson fourth, Ryan Blaney rounds out the top five, Alex Bowman sixth, Christopher Bell seventh, Chase Elliott eighth, Michael McDowell ninth, and Ty Dillon sneaking in to round out the top ten. So some of the other notables. Brad Keselowski eleventh, Daniel Suarez twelfth, Chris Buescher fifteenth, Austin Cindric 16th, William Byron 18th, Harrison Burton 20th, Martin Truex 21st, Chase Briscoe 22nd, Eric Almarola 23rd, Eric Jones 24th, Bubba Wallace 28th, Ricky Stanhouse 29th, and a bunch of DNFs, which include Austin Dillon and Kurt Busch at 31st and 32nd, Ross Chastain 33rd, Kevin Harvick 34th, and Denny Hamlin 35. So far, it's been kind of a weird couple months of of NASCAR. Actually, I want to look at the standings a little bit because... I mean, it's a very, very tight race between who's first and who's second. With uh, Chase Elliott leading the way. Uh, No wins, but top top five only once. Uh, Ryan Blaney, four top fives. No wins either, but 324 versus 321. The rest of the top 10 as follows. Joey Logano, 303. William Byron, 295. Tied for 5th. Kyle Busch and Alex Bowman with 273. Martin Truex, 253. Uh, Ross Chastain, 250. 249 is Kyle Larson. And the top 10 rounding out is Chase Briscoe with 245. Although, to look at the final six spots, uh, Tyler Reddick, 241, Eric Almarola, 237, Kevin Harvick, 225, Austin Sindrick, 222, Christopher Bell, 220, and Daniel Suarez, 212. So you got a mix of a number of these younger drivers, and then you get some of the old vets like Harvick and the Bush, and Kyle Bush, excuse me in the way. Joe Logano being one of the top veterans third in the in the point standings. So yeah, that's about wrapping up with the sports. Moving on to to some TV and television stuff. One of the unfortunate sides of this year is that we've been seeing a lot more people passing away. And it's one of those things that, as time goes on, it's like the people of your childhood or the people that you grew up watching or watched when you were adult. It is just crazy how things happen. And 
one of the one of the more surprising uh, passings was comedian Gilbert Gottfried. Comedian, he did many things in television, movies. Age of sixty-seven when he passed away. He was married for fifteen years. Surprisingly. I mean, he had done a number, number of films, a number of TV shows. Uh, but one thing uh, that nobody knew about—I'm not sure if anyone knew—was that uh, my myotonic dystrophy, a genetic disorder. So someone might ask, what is that? Well, that's what Gottfried had. It's a muscular dystrophy. The cause of death in regards to Gottfried, recurrent ventricular tachycardia, which is a heart condition. So if I had to guess, I'm not a doctor. I'm no health expert. It just sounds like maybe like muscles in the heart were not working as well, and probably that's what caused his passing. That's that's pretty sad, but let's take a look at some of his um, take a look at some of his resume because he did a number of acting acting roles. His most notable being uh, Aladdin, where he voiced the bird uh, Iago, who was a bad guy. Uh, when the movie first came out and then kind of became somewhat of a good guy he has a lot he has a lot of work and it's that type of voice that you see on a number of kid shows TV sitcoms many other things I mean just just taking a look at it, I mean, he did Beverly Hills Cop 2, Let's see what else, <laughs> Problem Child, he was in the first and second ones, curious to see if he was in the second, not the second one, the third one, let's see what else, did shows such as uh, Cosby Show, Night Court, oh, he was in the state, that's interesting. Um, obviously, Aladdin, uh, Bonkers. He was in. He did a couple episodes. Herman's Head. Ren and Stimpy for an episode or two. Beavis and Butthead for an episode. <laughs> Uncredited role in uh, Blank Man. Bobby's World. I mean. Oh shoot, there was a problem child cartoon. Are you kidding me? That is crazy. Okay, so he did do Problem Child 3. A few Aladdin stuff. Some Disney stuff here and there. <laughs> Just trying to think of like stuff like Duckman, Weird Al show. 
did Saturday Night Live, obviously. <laughs> oh, man. Superman, he actually, the late 90s, uh, did a couple of Superman episodes. That, unbelievable. Dilbert, he did an episode of that. He was in an episode of, uh, Clark, a couple episodes of the Clerks. I knew he did Fairly Odd Parents. He did the, uh, the dentist guy, I believe. Crazy. This guy, this guy's resume is just, like I said, it's a lot of, a lot of cartoon stuff. I mean, he has a type of voice that you could do for, for many characters. Yeah, definitely sad to see go. But then again, he was controversial at times. But the other passing that that I'll bring up uh, is Liz Sheridan. So this is a lady who, not too long ago, passed away uh, at the age of 93. Just turned 93. And her most notable role was playing Helen Seinfeld, uh, Mrs. Seinfeld, Jerry's mom, on Seinfeld. That's what I think a lot of people know her for. And she was one of those... She was one of those... She was one of those actresses that kind of unrecognized here and there at at one point and then got to do all these type of roles in TV and just I mean just gonna take a quick look at some of the stuff that she did but one of her um, just starting somewhere like she was one of those people that, you know, one episode here or there. I mean, it's not a bad way to to do TV. I mean, find yourself playing like a specific role. I mean, I'm just looking at we got like Archie Bunker's Place, which was I think the spinoff of All in the Family. What do we got here? St. Elsewhere, that's the Denzel Washington show. Well, like some shows I don't even recognize. Uh, but there's some others, such as uh, Newhart, which is the Bob Newhart show. Moonlighting with Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis. A lot of these are just one episode or two. She did the A-Team for a couple episodes. Uh, an episode of Who's the Boss. An episode of Hill Street Blues. And then getting the opportunity to be a recognized person with the show ALF. Playing a, according to one of the articles, a neighbor, it was on there for quite a bit of time. The show only ran for about four years, but Sheridan was in a number of them. About 34, according to IMDb. Murder, She Wrote, in 91. She did an episode of uh, Melrose Place, like early Melrose Place. Let's see what else? Blossom. 
it's trying it's Life with Louie, which is the uh Louie Anderson show. And actually that's kinda sad to think about. Uh that he passed away not too long ago too. But yeah, Seinfeld twenty one episodes. She was there from like the beginning of the show's run. First season was her debut. And as weird as it sounds, as weird as it sounds, uh, with the passing of Estelle Harris, I almost feel like there would be like a joke or something with Seinfeld as a way to get back at the stanzas. (laughs) Obviously, it's, I don't know, just some sort of like empowerment or ego that George would have or something, knowing that that Mrs. Seinfeld passed away and that she gets more love than Mrs. Costanza. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what else? Is she uh, American Dad. Actually, and a few other, like, few, like, TV show stuff. And some smaller, like, movies that... I don't think I ever heard about. But yeah, it's always like the smaller people that have the most. It's always the smaller people that. It's one of those things where, hey, I recognize that face. Oh, doing this TV show. Oh, doing this TV show. I think I say it like this. They are they are the lifeblood of of TV. Sure. Sure, you're not watching them solely for their guest starring appearances but it's always cool to see some of these people appear in an episode and see how they interact with some of your favorite characters, some of your least favorites at least that's how I see it I don't know but definitely you know it's a shame to see the last of the parents of, of Seinfeld pass but they're they're part of the reasons why the show show was funny at times in their interactions with um, with Jerry and the gang. And the last thing for TV that I could think of is The Simpsons turning 35 today. Now you might be saying, "What? They turned 35 today?" Yes, because that's when they first appeared on television. Now, I am aware of the show airing in December of 89 and not getting weekly episodes until a couple weeks later in, in 1990. But they first started as shorts on the Tracy Ullman show. So they've been pretty around for practically Fox's entire existence. And it all started with some very, very crude shorts that... Basically, minute-long shorts centering around the Simpson family. Homer, Bart, Marge, Lisa, and Maggie. Husband and wife, Homer and Marge, and their kids. Basic stuff such as saying goodnight, watching TV, eating dinner, and then expanding more into what goes on outside the house. 
and introducing Grandpa Simpson uh, about a season or two later. Introducing Krusty the Clown, which is hard to imagine. But this, the Tracy Ullman version of Krusty is, is a lot different from the Krusty everyone knows. And actually, Grandpa being a little more of a wise-ass compared to what you typically saw out of him when The Simpsons became a show. It's I think it's got to be hard to go back and, and listen to those voices because Bart and Lisa kind of sound the same. Marge, I don't think she really found her voice until... I'd say maybe the second or third season of the show. And Homer, man, the Walter Matthau impression is just... I mean, I get what he was trying to do, but... It seems a little off, and... While while it is funny here and there, it's nice that... uh, Homer started to get more of a different voice when the first season came about and by the time the second or third season came about we got the Homer that a lot of people know and it was just a goofy dysfunctional family and you know character stuff like this is why we saw this push towards more realistic uh, families you know maybe not completely realistic but Enough to know that not everyone is well-to-do and, you know, not everything ends with a lesson here and there. Like, essentially, one one particular short, uh, Bart uh, stopping a robber, getting money, but wanting the money to be paid in candy bars. Think about the type of money that he's just being a kid. I don't think money really interests him. He wants to rot his teeth out. (laughs) but yeah I mean it's been 35 years I mean very important thing to have and really Matt Groening being one of the biggest reasons for for Fox still existing so let's jump to the movies and kind of a soft weekend especially with what was put in the theater. Kind of soft all around. The number one movie, according to the box office mojo, was Fantastic Beasts 3. Now, the numbers are not anything impressive. Now, it did well worldwide for its opening weekend. Altogether, $192 million all across the globe, but unfortunately, domestically, forty-two million, and I believe it's a continued downward trend of Fantastic Beasts not really pulling in the numbers that I think Warner Brothers expects them to do. So, I think Warner's going to have to expect. Uh, international numbers to do really great which is kind of kind of disappointing and I think a lot of people have not been impressed 
with with Fantastic Beasts. I don't think they've been well regarded. I think the closest one to being well regarded was the first one. That was what five, six years ago. Nobody really cares about it. It just if I had to put a perspective on it, I've and this is coming from me who's not seen them. It just sounds like they're trying to expand on the wizarding world and not understanding why Harry Potter gets all sorts of love because there was a beginning to end, you know, a continuation of the adventures of Harry and his friends trying to stop evil, trying to make sure everything is peaceful in both the muggle world and the wizarding world. And it came all together in a 10-year span for both the books and the movies. Seven books in 10 years, eight movies in 10 years. And people want a good conclusion. And for the most part, it delivered on every aspect. I'm not sure that can apply greatly to to this Fantastic Beast stuff. But whatever the re- case, I mean, it's going to have a rough time in theaters. It's going to be very rough. I don't know what else you can really say, but I think they're trying to make a couple more movies out of this. And this is a movie that has a $200 million budget. They better hope they can at least get to, I don't know, 650, 700 million. I really doubt it'll happen, but you never know. So 42.5 million, well, not 42.5, just over 42 million over the weekend. Sonic the Hedgehog 2, a little over 29 million. And altogether, it's made 118 mil domestically and 231 uh, altogether worldwide. I kind of thought the numbers would be a little higher being Easter weekend and a kid's film over the weekend. You'd think maybe that would curry some favor to them. But still, it's doing pretty decent. And one of the other things that's being brought up, and this was from sites such as Bloody Disgusting and a couple of gaming websites such as Kotaku and IGN. Sega is planning a Streets of Rage uh, movie. And one of the people that got involved is, I think his name is Derek Kolstad, who is responsible for creating John Wick, wrote the movie Nobody with Bob Odenkirk. So it'd be interesting to see what route uh, Streets of Rage goes. It'd be very interesting because it's there's definitely an urban vibe to the first uh, Streets of Rage game. Not sure how you go with the sequels, but a movie about kicking ass and taking names. I think people would definitely jump in on it. Depends on how gritty it is and maybe the type of violence being done in the film. At least that's how I see it. But yeah, let's hopefully there's more. Sega stuff that gets the kind of care and attention that that Sonic's getting. So number three 
is the Lost City. Probably just edged out. I want to take a look because everything, everywhere, all at once. Okay, just, just eclipsed. Uh, well, hold on. Let's, let me rephrase it. Lost City just eclipsed, just barely eclipsed. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. So Lost City made a little over six point two million. So altogether, it made a little more than its budget here domestically. Uh, worldwide, eighty-seven million, seventy-eight mil domestically. So definitely quieting down a little bit. And the everything, everywhere, all at once, expanding more and more. So a little over six, six million altogether, just over seventeen mil, seventeen and a half mil. Domestically, it's made 18 mil worldwide. Uh, rounding out the top five is Father Stew, which is the uh, Stuart Long, the guy who becomes a priest after being a boxer and many other things. Came out uh, Wednesday, the uh, 13th. And made a couple million, and altogether just over five million, close to five and a half mil over the weekend. So kind of a quiet weekend. This was a new release. This was a new nationwide release. So altogether, almost eight million. Can't imagine this movie having uh, a good run in theaters. It'd be lucky to even reach twenty million. Which I don't, which I'm kind of doubting it will. Uh, number six, Morbius, 4.7 million, and on the way it's looking, I don't think this movie's gonna stay that much longer in theaters. 65 million altogether here domestically, 81 mil internationally. So if if it's bleeding, it's probably just gonna take a small bleed from. From what was made on it, really can't imagine it being anything other than potentially a flop. Be curious to see if it made any profit. I'm kind of finding it a little hard to believe that it did. Number seven, Ambulance, just barely made it to four million, and worldwide, forty million, fifteen plus mil domestically, and almost twenty-five mil internationally so it's already made its budget back and probably Universal's going to lose a little bit of money if I had to assume number 8 the uh, Batman at 3.7 mil finds itself sitting comfortably at 365 domestically and combined with the international at 386 it just made it to $751 million worldwide. So definitely some good stuff in the eyes of Warner. Seeing that Batman can still bring in an audience. Number uh, 9, KGF Chapter 2. Color Goldfields. Never heard of it. 
Is this a new release? Yes, it is. 2.8 million. Um, not any theater numbers. I'm kind of. It's gotta be. It's gotta be like. Gotta be like 500. Anywhere between like 500 to 1,000 theaters. It's gotta be like a small release if I had to assume so. Maybe, maybe less than, definitely less than a thousand. I'm trying to figure it out, but, eh. and number ten, Uncharted, which is at one point one mil, and ending its weekend at one hundred forty-five million. Which, think about it all together, that's that's pretty good, given the type of budget for it, and worldwide three hundred eighty-nine million, which is pretty impressive not sure if Sonic will get to it but definitely definitely some good stuff to consider that two video game movies actually doing pretty well commercially and then the rest is just a steep drop the next closest is despite being I think on streaming and home video Spider-Man No Way Home at 200,000, so definitely going to be staying at uh, 804 million, but just still uh, an amazing accomplishment given Spider-Man. And actually, next month, the first Sam Raimi movie turns 20. I mean, sure, there was the Blade movies, or the first Blade to be exact, and Spider-Man, but... Spider-Man really kicked off people wanting Marvel. As hard as that is to uh, believe. So, three movies coming out uh, nationwide over the uh, over the weekend. The Northman, which I saw a little trailer, a little bit of a trailer for it. I actually went to go see... Uh, Father Stu uh, yesterday and it's a action filled epic that follows a young Viking prince on his quest to avenge his father's murder okay it might be a fun film but I don't know uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent which is the Nick Cage film as Nick Cage <laughs> And the other one being the uh, bad guys. And the bad guys actually open up in some international markets at $51 million right now. Which, I actually want to look at the budget. I'm actually pretty, pretty curious. And that's actually a movie I wouldn't mind seeing in the theater. But I do want to see what the reviews are like. That's the one thing... Um, the bad, the bad guys budget, uh, movie budget, 80 million, that's, that's actually pretty good for a DreamWorks movie, I'm, I'm shockingly impressed, I mean, this should do decent in theater, I think, and be kind of you know, the passing of the torch, you know, Sonic being out there for a few weeks, taking the taking the spotlight, and then having something like the bad guys 
do rather decent. A lot of uh, a lot of limited films coming out. Um, there's this one film I'm curious about, not because I'm not sure if this is a live action film or animated. It's called Charlotte, an account of German Jewish artist Charlotte Solomon Salomon living in the south of France between 1941 and 1943. I'm I'm curious actually. Just taking a just I'm actually let's see if she Yep. She was one of those people that that painted many things and obviously hid from the Nazis in 40, 41 to 43. Unfortunately passed away in Auschwitz. So more unlikely brutally murdered by by the Germans. So it's supposed to be it's supposed to be like a documentary or a live action film because it, it looks like an animated thing but I don't see this being an animated film this this has to be live action because I, 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 if I don't know I'm actually I'm pretty curious a lot of limited releases coming out um, the April 29th as well and the only movie that's nationwide is memory. An assassin for hire finds that he's become the, a target after he refuses to complete a job for a dangerous criminal organization. A remake of the 2003 Belgian film, The Memory of a Killer. This is another Liam Neeson movie. I, this is going to fail. It's going to fail next week. I know these studios want to still keep using Liam Neeson to be their action guy, but that ship has sailed long ago. There's no way he keeps doing the same type of film over and over and over. What was that movie that... Was it Blacklight, I think it was called? I just want to look at the numbers for a brief second. Because that movie was a was a total fail. Yeah, Blacklight. Only made... Only made $9 million. I mean, it was a failure for a reason. Worldwide, $15 million. See if it even... Yeah, lasted in the theater from early February to almost late March. Like, seriously, no one's interested in this crap anymore. Actually, yeah, Travis Block is a government operator. Seriously, the guy can do many things. Schindler's List, for God's sake. Fallout 3. It's not like he's a one-trick pony. He did a freaking Seth MacFarlane movie, for crying out loud. And even did a cameo for another MacFarlane film. It's, I just don't get it. I really don't. I mean, sorry for the rant, but... When is enough enough to stop abusing Liam Neeson? The guy can do many things. But there comes a point for some of these guys who do these action films when enough's enough. 
Seriously, cut the guy a break. Let him do something else. Give him a role that might might stimulate people's minds. Not some generic action film where he keeps doing the same plot over and over. I mean, I know Taken's a, probably a fun movie for people, but this isn't the late 2000s anymore. And rant. Sorry. Uh, lastly, video games. So, April 16th marked 15 years ago with um, the, a shooting that occurred at uh, Virginia Tech University. And the university itself honored the 32 victims that were shot and killed that day when a gunman, a college student, opened fire and killed him and then put the gun on himself. And why am I talking about this for in, in video games? Well, I'll explain it. 2007 was a year where the internet was not a new thing. It had been around for over a decade at this point. We were starting to see forms of social media grow over the course of a four to five year span. You had Facebook in 2004. You had Twitter, which was what, five, six months in to existing. You had MySpace. YouTube had been around for a couple of years. So, your everyday average Joe can smell bullshit when they see it and voice a form of displeasure or voice that they're not doing a rather good job. And with past shootings, which includes stuff such as Columbine and Paducah, Kentucky in the late 90s, there were people that were going after video games. Going after Doom, going after Wolfenstein, going after Final Fantasy, going after many things. And touchy touchy subjects, obviously, but as time went on, it, 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 the thing with Columbine that I'll bring up is nobody cared about the mental health of, of the killers. They didn't want to study what went wrong with their personal lives. No, they'd rather target something that is pretty simple and can easily go to a lot of people. You know, especially the morons that were running Fox News and uh, MSNBC by allowing some of these morons who don't understand a lick of video games trying to bash a medium that no one really, that none of them really knew about. And I feel like it was this push at that point where gamers finally stood up for their hobby and went after some of these people that <sighs> went after these people that that didn't know what they were talking about sure it may not be the, the loudest bunch of people but 
to get their voices heard. I remember long ago there was a YouTube channel that filmed filmed a movement to show what video games mean to people and why there's positives to video games versus always trying to cast it in a negative light. Especially when there were articles about the about the shooter that contradicted what people were speculating that oh video games this guy was playing I believe the game was Counter Strike but a roommate of the shooter said all he really played was Sonic the Hedgehog. So I think it's people trying to jump in on the bandwagon to say this is what's happening we need to stop it and yeah actually I want to find a quote because this was a guy I want to find if his name is still if he's still around but I believe his name is Jason Della Roca Della Roca is a gamer first and foremost and just trying to find maybe if I look because he coined he coined a term that I think is pretty interesting massacre chasers and it's pretty funny because one of the things this was this was not too long after the shooting occurred so he went after this lawyer Della Roca went after uh, a Florida lawyer by the name of Jack Thompson this guy Thompson was always chasing video games like trying to get them banned trying to blame them for shooting like how do you the thing I think about is like with Doom how do you aim in Doom? How do you aim in Wolfenstein 3D? You can't. How does one teach a kid to shoot? Or let alone aim and shoot? So I think the phrase was <laughs> Oh man, what was the I just want to find the Yeah, it's just... The video games were always in a negative light. And I don't think anyone on Fox or MSNBC tried anything to... <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to find it. Oh, this was not too long after <laughs> the dismissal of... A settlement between Take Two and Thompson. This was according to Engadget. A string of lawsuits going back to Bully. <laughs> oh man, this was during the last couple of years of Thompson being a lawyer and being one of the most bitter losers. Excuse me, bitter sore losers because. Because he couldn't find a link between video games and shootings. 
Uh, the thing I do wish we could do more of in regards to shootings is study the mental health. I think mental health is pretty important. And I think we should study it a bit more so that way we can understand what makes some people tick and what makes them do great things, what makes them do tragic things. And I don't know. It's just, it's one of those spots that I, I wish we could, I wish we could take medicine more seriously. Understand what goes on in the world of someone's body. But yeah, 15 years since uh, Virginia Tech, I mean, sad to see that happen, but (sighs) gamers got tired of hearing all the BS and stood up for themselves. And in in the time since, it's nice to see gamers tell people, you know, the good, the good stuff, even if, even if the good stuff is overshadowed by negative events. And the last thing I'll end here is a potential leak of Nintendo Switch. Over the course of the last few years, the Nintendo Switch has had online. And for 20 bucks, you get a year service to their online. And that includes NES and Super NES games. This past year, they've put in an expansion for Nintendo 64 and Sega Genesis and not met with a warm reception. Let's see how long that was. NSO expansion pack. So this was... Yeah, this, this was announced back in November... And even as recent as almost two weeks ago with Tech Radar, Nintendo Switch Online Expansion Pack is a bad deal no matter how much you slice it. Opinion, more retro consoles can't save this overpriced bundle. And basically saying that the Switch Online has been a mixed bag at best poor online, poor infrastructure, lag spikes when playing Mario Kart, Super Smash Bros., friends list, in-game chat. I know Nintendo wants to protect people, but at the same time, yeah. Adding, obviously, like I said, N64, Sega Genesis, it but that's all you're really getting. And if you're interested, if you're not interested in Animal Crossing, or if you already had bought the expansion for it, then what's the point? So, twenty bucks for the online, obviously. But when you add in the other stuff, okay, it did launch. Uh, launched almost six months ago. I thought it came out earlier, but. Altogether, fifty bucks a year. That's just that's bad. That that that's. Well, one of the things people wanted to see was, say, the Game Boy 
Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance. Well, potentially this leak, according to sites such as Nintendo Everything, Nintendo Life, and of course uh, sites such as IGN, suggests that the Switch Online could be getting the handheld stuff, which I think is some good timing considering the shutdown of the Wii U and 3DS eShops that are going to be shut down uh, next year in March of 2023. I think, I think if, the, if, it's, if this is true, this will be a big boost to Nintendo. There are lots of people who would love to play a number of their handheld games. Think about it, being able to play, say, Super Mario Land as a home console, one or two other things as well, tell me that's not cool. Being able to play Mario Land 2, or some of their early games, getting some of the third-party stuff, if, if possible, it would be awesome. It would be hugely awesome. But I would love to see more, because... I would love to see Game Gear on there or TurboGrafx 16. I mean, make it like the virtual console. Do it like what they did with the Wii. Find ways to entice customers. Or, you know what? Now that I think about it, how about the DS? Might be a little weird, but I was just thinking. Maybe, maybe try some DS stuff. I'm, I'm not sure it'd be possible, but it's, I think it'd be worth a shot. The only problem that I could think of is Nintendo probably trying to find a way to charge extra. I could see I could see them trying to count it as, oh, here's expansion pack number two. Bring us another 20 bucks. There's no way families are paying that much. But then again, some people are just gullible. I could see I could see it going to $70 a year. If you include both packs. If it is a pack, by the way. But you add it in with the expansion pack of the 64 and Genesis, it'll help it a bit. I'm not sure how big, but it would do something, I think. <sighs> it's sad to see, think about it, but Nintendo is pretty stubborn, in my opinion, when it comes to... understanding um, online and people sure it's a small minuscule group of people that want the older games and people will definitely want the newer stuff however not everyone's going to jump to buying the expansion for an additional $30 especially to play the same Genesis games and the same N64 games it just—it's not going to suffice. It's, and considering their quality, from what I understand, not being up to snuff compared to Xbox and PlayStation, it's just. At some point, uh, Nintendo's got to look at everything from a worldwide perspective and not just Japan. I don't—I'm not sure they'll realize the issues, but. Hopefully this leak is true, because it'd be cool to play play some of this stuff on the Switch. 
I would love to play Super Mario Deluxe on the on the Switch. Especially to play through the challenges again and just see how it looks on a on a TV. Then again, there's also the Game Boy Player for the GameCube, but that thing requires a disc, and I wouldn't be surprised if many people lost the damn disc. So, that about wraps up this episode here. Uh, as I said before, this podcast is on Anchor.fm. You can also find this on Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So, head on down to those places, search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content awaits you. So, with that, episode 111 of Geeks and Jocks, this is Ryan Sullivan. Hope to hear your listeners on the next podcast. Stay safe, stay protected, take care of yourself, take care everyone.